Where do you go in a world of bad takes? For the good takes on baseball and life with a balance of analytics and humor, philosophical music, effectively wild, effectively wild, effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2024 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined once again, rejoined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Welcome back, Meg. Hello. Thank you. Good to be back. The other co-host is here, order is restored, <laughs> and our podcast cup runneth over because we are also joined by two guests, two great guests whose jerseys are already hanging in the effectively wild rafters, Eric Langenhagen and Michael Bauman, Fangraph's own. Hello, guys. Welcome. Howdy. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for having me, too, and letting Eric <laughs> tag along this time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was kind of a package deal, I guess. It was just two Philly guys or no Philly guys, so we took them both. I actually had something to bring up about that. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, probably Eric didn't because it was on Twitter. But Jay Kuda, the very prolific fun fact finder slash infographic guy slash shit poster, who's kind of a high-volume shooter on Twitter, so... Not every one of his tweets lands for me, but sometimes there's a, a good one that makes me wonder how he ever... You, you used a basketball idiom there, like a minute into the podcast. Uh, yeah, wow. Multi-sport expert here. But but sometimes he uh, thinks of things that I never would have thought to check, and he posted the legal names of all 30 MLB <laughs> organizations. Yeah, I did see this. Yeah, and so all of them, except one has some kind of corporate uh, appendix or something, right? They're all LLCs or they're limited partnerships, right? Uh, so, you know, the the Mets are Sterling Mets Limited and the Rockies are Colorado Rockies Baseball Club Limited and Detroit Tigers are Detroit Tigers Inc., which is very funny to me <laughs> for some reason. Or it's, you know, Kansas City Royals Baseball Club LLC, right? All except one. The Phillies, whose legal name is just the Phillies. The Phillies. <laughs> just the Phillies, which just, it feels fitting. It feels so yeah. perfect. Like, they're not putting on airs, you know? They're it's just... very drop the the, just Facebook, it's neater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just, it feels appropriate for that team and that city and that group of guys. It's just like, we're I'm gonna... surprised the corporate name of the entity isn't Da Fightins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. The Phillies. I enjoyed it. It just, it rings true. So we have a lot to talk about today. Ostensibly, we're going to talk about some amateur baseball. I actually do have some questions about college baseball. This was, well, it was my idea, but you were like, yeah, we should do yeah, that. And I, I went like, along with it. I, I was a willing participant in we're this We're bringing exercise. them along. We're bringing yeah, them along. MLB draft combine has been happening and sort of still is happening. And Eric and Michael have been attending that. And then the college baseball World Series is happening as of Saturday, and there's a, a lot to talk about there. But I do have some MLB stuff to touch on here. The first thing I wanted to bring up, I don't know whether you guys saw Dave Martinez's ejection 
on Thursday, he had a, a real throwback. It was a real old school ejection. He was complaining about pitch calls, and I think he had a case. There were some suspect ones. But he went out there and he put on a show. He did the cleaning of the plate, right? Mm. He, he he used uh, some of his like statistical papers or lineup papers or whatever it was to wipe off the plate, which is a great go-to move. But then he actually got down on the ground and kind of conveyed where he thought the pitch was or where it was received, like way down in the dirt, basically. He just, he stretched out full length. This was after he got run. So he was walking back to the dugout and then he got the heave-ho and then he went back and got his money's worth at that point. And I was just thinking that I haven't really seen that so much. And I don't know whether my perception of that is accurate or whether you think I'm inventing things here. It's not that managers don't get ejected anymore. They certainly do. But I feel like the theatricality of the manager ejection has really gone downhill. Like, you see spittle hmm. flying and you see arguing and you see invective, but you don't really see people acting things out anymore <laughs> or, like, running away with bases or throwing faux grenades or, you know, all the, the stuff that, like— would really go viral or make Sports Center or whatever. It's just now it's like a guy gets mad or pantomimes being mad and then goes back to the dugout. And we don't really see this uh, inventiveness and creativity anymore. Am I off base here or am I picking off on something that is actually happening? Or well, I think happening? you're right. Yeah, I think that there's something about 21st century media, really when Philip Wellman became, the fact that I know that yeah. Philip Wellman's name is on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> yeah is an indication that, you know, at some point our culture held on to these moments and made a big deal, much bigger deal of these moments than they had been in the Lou Pinella Cubs right. days, right? Yeah. Uh, and some of that stuff still lives on, but I think it, the way it permeates through the culture and the way we all kind of go, look at this guy losing his mind uh, at his job uh, has, has probably impacted the way grown men in that moment think about how to behave. They have that awareness that, oh, I'm going to be on social media, which is a thing that they didn't have to think about until, you know, 10 True. or so years ago. And so, yeah, I do think that that causes people to be like, ah, do I really want this on my, on my death reel? You know, like when, <laughs> when it's over for me is, are the things that people are going to think about yeah, me losing my mind. The first slide of your open is that you threw a rosin bag as, as a grenade. Right. But that was yeah. so funny. Yeah. yeah. That's just, not a bad I, way to really have lost a, yeah. an element of artistry, I think. Yeah, people thought, I think, that ejections were going to go the way of the dodo just because once you had replay, why even bother arguing with the umpires on the field if they weren't <laughs> responsible for the call, yeah. right? Or ball and strike calls have gotten better, obviously, as uh, umpires have gotten graded on these things. So people thought there would be fewer things to argue about or less reason to argue. Mm. And I don't know that that's really happened. I, no. I think ejections are down slightly relative to some earlier eras, but uh, guys still get ejected all the time. Aaron Boone gets ejected every other game, right? But I guess he had some memorable ones, like when he had the Savages in the Box yeah. game, but but that was more about something he said yeah. than something he did or acted out. So again, it's not like the, the choreography of the manager argument and ejection, I think, has headed downhill. Well, I think it 
in the age of, you know, not to put it too fine a point on it, but John Boy's lip reading videos, like <laughs> I think there is a place for appreciate. And I definitely appreciate Aaron Boone is a, a craftsman in that specific genre of, of manager ejections. But I wonder if there's also the kind of personality that you put in the dugout. Like it seemed like up until the turn of the century, like the guy you hire to be the manager is a guy who is good at getting ejected. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and now that the qualifications for managing in the big leagues are other than, are you a former middle infielder with substance abuse problems? Then (laughs) you get guys, I think, who are a little more even keeled. But, and I love that this was Dave Martinez because I think he's probably the best in the game right now. Yeah, I think so. Getting ejected. He he had that recent incident too where- The World Series incident is just- But, but he also, what was it like last week? He yeah, he brought yeah, a printout, yeah. yeah, right. He he brought a like a presentation of that uh, umpire miscall, or so he claimed on the batter running inside the baseline, the batter yeah. runner, and he he brought a, a still image to demonstrate that he was in the right. So you don't see that kind of prop use these days. So he's really kind of carrying on that tradition. It is interesting to me that people thought that ejections would decline and that people would sort of take at face value the calls they saw on the field. Because I think, you know, accuracy is certainly part of what goes into f- to managers feeling frustrated or not in a given situation. But like, there's so much else that goes into that. I don't know. Once you've, once you've seen a player flip the bird <laughs> to, <laughs> to an automatic ball and strike call in the fall league, you're like, this is only, only a little bit about accuracy and, and much more about feelings. But then that makes it surprising that we haven't seen more big demonstrative, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to prove a point for my guys kind of mm-hmm. moments. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Along the lines of what you were just saying, Bowen, there's a, a article in the Times from 2019 that was headlined, The Dying Art of the Manager Meltdown. And there was a paragraph in there. And even when arguments do occur in today's game, Dale Scott said, Dale Scott, the former umpire and effectively wild guest, the younger, newer managers don't measure up to their predecessors quote, especially the ones who are all about numbers and sabermetrics. They come out to argue, Scott added, and they have no clue what to actually say. <laughs> so I guess that supports uh, your hypothesis that the, the new numbers-based uh, don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble, uh, be the middleman between the front office and the field. Maybe they're just not working with a, a full clip when it comes to being prepared for these arguments. We got to send them to like improv class or something. Yeah. I don't think it takes that much. Just I do think it would be useful to have that that uh, tool in their toolkit. Yeah. You really, you really want to make theater kids out of maybe yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's funny because at the same time this is happening, we have choreographed home run celebrations everywhere you look. So it's, it's not like uh, theater kids are out of place here. We even answered a listener email not long ago from an actual theater kid who was like, can I get a job as a consultant for team home run celebrations to really blow these things out? So players are doing it at the same time that managers are sort of restraining themselves. I wonder if it also has to do with the emphasis on pace of play, right? Because if you're running around the bases and you're making off with the bases and you're throwing things and you're wiping things off and generally just refusing to leave the field, you're delaying the game. And I don't know if like there would be pitch clock issues there, Mm. I mean, right? Like there's a between batter clock. I, I 
I mean, that could be a problem. I don't, I don't know if they would suspend it for a heated manager argument or whether you could actually hurt your team or whether it just goes against the culture of the sport now, which is like, let's keep things moving. So we don't want people who aren't even technically involved in the game to be the ones slowing things down. But it is quite entertaining when they slow things down in a certain way. So I wouldn't want to lose that entirely. Especially if it's a relatively nondescript team like the Nationals, a Dave Martinez blow-up might be the best thing that happens in any given game. We still have some big dramatic flares, so maybe the answer is that we're, we're concentrating that energy into a few choice ejections rather than spreading it out over a, a broader number. Because sometimes yeah. you get like the, the thing that happened in the Rangers game what, last week where you ended up with... Marcus Simeon and then the manager and I think the pitching coach somehow all ejected within a 30-second span. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, blow-ups, uh, I guess, Meg, your number one overall pick in the 26-under-25 draft has been benched for a couple games. Uh, Wander Franco, will you be issuing discipline as well? I, I guess you will indirectly because uh, you will not be receiving any wins above replacement toward your total while he is not in the lineup. So almost by default, he is uh, benched for your team as well. I'm going to say the following, Ben. First of all, it's a long draft. It's a 10-year window. Yes. I think he'll be fine. And second of all, um, with the exception of um, watching some amateur players run a 30-yard dash yesterday and then the college baseball, um, my engagement with uh, the sport over the last couple of days has been, you know, seeing the University of Oregon's baseball stadium. So I don't know. I'm, ben, I'm here to tell you, I don't even have any idea what you're talking about. What did he do? Did he do something naughty? Is it bad? <laughs> he's a bad teammate now. He's a bad teammate? So Kevin Cash uh, made sure to clarify he's a good kid, but uh, apparently, you know, he's uh, also still kind of uh, a kid age-wise, and I guess the Rays have not been happy with how he has uh, handled some recent failures. He's uh, been slumping a little lately by Wander Franco standards, and apparently there have been some verbal spats with teammates and uh, mm. some instances of slamming equipment in mm. the dugout after making out uh, in close proximity to other players, perhaps. So they've decided to send him a message here. Cash said uh, he's a really good kid, a really good person, but he is learning and dealing with the challenges of being a major league player and some of the frustrations that come with it. So obviously news because uh, he's probably the best player on probably the best team. Yeah. But the way that they're handling it, it, it seems to be a little different from, say, Ali Marmol and Tyler O'Neill or, or those various incidents, right? But it is, uh, you know, you always, it's a weird job in so many ways. I mean, we were just right. talking about manager ejections. In what other job can you make a public spectacle of yourself and behave in a way that typically would not be welcomed in the workplace, be told to leave, and then come back the next day? And, uh, you know, unless you spat on someone or accidentally bumped someone, it's fine. Everything resets and everyone goes uh, gets along well, yeah. and it's just it's a part of the business, you know. If we if cut we up the jerseys out of, in the clubhouse, yeah. If if we stormed out of our workplaces in a similar way and just uh, came back the next day and uh, acted as if 
nothing happens, that probably would not fly. I mean, we all work remotely, so I guess we can act however we want. But Yeah, I was like, I'm going to storm into my own yard. Very, I was going to say, it's very much like podcasting in that respect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when you actually have to work in proximity to other people, generally frowned upon, and yet we're like, no, they should make a bigger spectacle of themselves. Anyway, sort of similar, I guess, uh, when it comes to baseball players being benched or disciplined in that we all know about it. And I guess that's part of the point. The reason to do it is, uh, you know, sort of to send a message that is public and acts as a disincentive. Hey, don't do that anymore because everyone knows that you've been misbehaving or that we think you've been misbehaving. I guess you could say, like, if you take that step with your franchise cornerstone, whom you have tied your future to by extending him for a zillion years, then you better be right that that's the way you want to go about it. I guess you could also say that uh, because your future is tied to him for a zillion years, then you think long-term with that player, just like Meg is thinking long-term with her draft. And so if you're thinking that benching him for a couple games now when you have a division lead that I guess could be more comfortable because the Orioles are quite good, it turns out, but that might pay dividends uh, down the road if the player learns a lesson from that and, and is not bitter about it, right? And there aren't hard feelings from this that fester. Yeah, I think it just goes to show that my idea of there needing to be like a feelings booth <laughs> for these guys is the right one because you got to vent, you got to vent the spleen, mm -hmm. you know, as mm -hmm. as we political theorists would say, you must vent the spleen and where else to do it but a like padded feelings booth and then you just have your little feelings and you can move on having decompressed. In the Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just go yeah. down the stairs and walk yeah. back there and then do your thing as long as you're not Kevin Browning yourself. Yeah. Do right. not punch walls. I continue to advocate for padded walls everywhere in, in yeah. anywhere close to the fields. Just people cannot control themselves. So you got to pad the walls. But yeah, it's a little padded booth. You know, mm -hmm. it would be ideal for podcasting or getting stuff off your chest, one or the other. I guess those are not mutually exclusive activities. But um, you go down there and you feel your frustration and you get it out and it's contained. It's not directed at anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, I do think that Everyone has days where they are snippy with coworkers in a way that they end up regretting later because we're all possessed of human feeling and we fail. So it's going to happen. But you, I think it is a good thing to intervene on at a certain point and be like, hey, we all got to get on together. So let's let's have some standards for how we comport ourselves toward our, toward our fellows, our fellow rays. Mm -hmm. That does explain a few things. Like, for instance... Uh, it explains why yesterday I found Meg sneaking up behind me with a scalpel in her hand, muttering, vent the spleen, vent the spleen under <laughs> vent her Vent the breath. spleen. You got to you vent the spleen. Not other people's spleens, just your own. No, yeah. one's own spleen. Right. And, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. And it, usually, I guess, with these benchings, uh, it's a direct response, sometimes even a mid-game response to a particular play that everyone sees. And in this case, I guess there may have been some apparent lollygagging, but it seems to have been behind the scenes stuff or things mm. that maybe the cameras weren't capturing. So it's uh, not quite the case of, you know, someone jogs after a ball and you immediately pull him and everyone can see why that happened. And maybe that's even extra embarrassing, right? But I guess it's all about the way that you explain it. And Kevin Cash seemed to do a somewhat better job of that than, say, Ali Marmol. Like, you got the impression that Kevin Cash had probably talked to Wander Franco before he, he aired all of this. And, and maybe they were like, 
on the same page, perhaps. I, I don't know whether it's so fair or not, but the Rays seem to get good reviews when it comes to kind of fostering chemistry and getting people to buy into what they're doing, which is maybe extra important for them because they're often doing something strange and something that you would think might make people not really want to be raised, like, uh, you know, unorthodox pitcher usage or whatever it is. But it seems like year in and year out, people are, are largely into that. Not in every case, but they're like, yeah, this is the raise uh, ethos. We're raised. We're going to all pull together. And you always hear about the raise that, like, they're good at kind of getting every level of the organization on the same page and having consistent messages, which I can't testify to from experience, but maybe you've heard that, Eric, as well. I guess in Franco's case, there's been, there have been things for a little while, but he's just such a young guy. You know, he loves cars and I think that he's got like multiple very elaborate vehicles and like one of them has like a safe in it for all his jewelry and stuff. So I don't know, it's just this immense wet on our brains until we're in our mid twenties. And if you gave me tens of millions of dollars, at that age, like I shudder to think of what I'd be doing. So I was just like, we'll let it air out. But anything that has long-term social weirdness and patterns of behavior that some of these young athletes exhibit that like leads to long-term, you know, transgressions and like they're a varying severity and type, whether it's, you know, Kyrie Irving or like, you know, John Morant or whoever it is, like it starts with a thing. At one point it is just like a thing they do and not yet a pattern of behavior. So, you know, I don't know. It's not really a big deal. I don't, I don't think, you know, you sit the guy down for a couple of days. I've lived through versions of this with the baseball teams I've cared about. Like Mike remembers, I'm sure like Jimmy Rollins, getting benched for not running out this and that ground ball and, you know, him whining about wanting to hit leadoff. And it's like, all right, like, I understand where everyone's coming from. Charlie Manuel is going to do things his way. And so, you know, ultimately it wasn't a, a big deal. I don't think that those two were like, you know, not on speaking terms or anything like that after all that. No, it and the thing about Jimmy Rollins is like he'd come back like two weeks later as like one of the senior leadership figures of that group, maybe like, you know, the de facto captain of that team. And so it like I think there's a lot of value in just saying, hey, like sit down, cool off, come back, you know, get your head right. And I, I think everybody needs that every so often. So absent like a bigger red flag, I, I don't I think yeah. the Razor are smart to handle this this way. As long as it's not a case like, do you remember last year, the Ronald Acuna comments about Freddie Freeman and the back and forth about that, and Acuna was implying that there was kind of clubhouse policing of rookie behavior, and this is not the way we do things here. And I'm sure in earlier eras of baseball history, there was probably some like, you know, we don't like the way this guy plays, and it's less about like actually being a bad teammate and more about just playing with a certain style, right? But I would imagine that's probably not what's happening in this case. Uh, I mean, Franco, like, you know, he's looked very much like he believes he belongs since day one, and and he is justified in that belief. Like, he's he has been a big leaguer and, and big league quality since he became a big leaguer. But, like, he always, I mean, you know, he kind of looked like a, a veteran almost just in terms of, like, does he think he should be here? Like, does he believe he's good enough to to be here? Because he had plenty of evidence to that effect. 
And in sports generally, there are just times when the clubhouse environment is like the foundation that's in place already is or is not stable enough to handle someone who's more volatile entering the mix, right? Like the Patriots teams where it's like, sure, Randy Moss was a malcontent in Oakland, but adding him to this group will be okay. And like Corey Dillon, same thing. And with this Rays group, just kind of looking up and down the lineup, they there isn't like Randy or Rose Rain is kind of a buck wild dude. And so is Jose Siri. Like Jose Siri is is really volatile as a person. And I don't know that there's there's not a lot happening here in this clubhouse where it's like, oh yeah, here the stabilizing force is, you know, this contingent of dudes. Uh, so maybe it is more, you know, more of something to watch as things trudge on here the rest of the season, you know, given that this team is like not really meeting any resistance. There hasn't really been any raise related adversity other than them weathering all these injuries to their pitchers, which they seem to have to do every year. But yeah, it's not as if I'm looking at this team and just like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, but I suppose, you know, when you have someone like a Freddie Freeman or like a Brian McCann or some of these people who are like imposing their will upon the clubhouse, unless they are absolutely the best guy and there's like, you know, some way of them backing it up, you know, in, in an unassailable way, there could be backlash to that that can be destabilizing. So like, I don't necessarily think that it's, you know, it's just, you got to have the right mix and it's just sort of a weird, I do think there is a weird alchemy to it that certain teams seem to have. And sometimes it can ebb and flow throughout the course of a season. And you just want things to, you know, hit right at the end when it's go time in October. Uh, and so I just think, you know, across baseball with this race team and, and elsewhere, it's probably still pretty magmatic. Uh, but yeah, like this race team, it is like, ah, oh, yeah, who is, who is the person who's like, Hey, get it together, everyone, you know, everyone needs to relax. Like you're third in baseball. You're like in the MVP conversation. You can have a couple over days and everything is fine, dude. Like, please chill out. <laughs> yeah. As, as long as you're not like uh, tamping down on someone's uh, personality or like the way they play the game in a positive way, the way they express themselves, if it's more just kind of curbing the times that uh, that is expressed in a way that makes other people uncomfortable or leads yeah. to like taking a playoff every now and then that kind of thing, then it's probably a useful corrective. And as long as it's communicated in the right way, then it's probably right. not something that's uh, going to become a bigger issue down the road. Yeah. And that's, it goes to what Eric was saying is there's a difference when that guy is like Albert Pujols versus when that guy's Bud Norris, you know? Right. <laughs> right. And we all need to be told to not like not be ourselves, but to like, it's okay. You can let it, you know, not, do not mean suggest that I am the editorial equivalent of Wander Franco, but like, you know, I need to be told every now and again, like, no, it's fine. Like you can, <laughs> you, you can, can leave take some a, of those a, hyphens. It's okay. I do. I leave some of them, Ben, but you know what? There are too many of them. So I can't leave them all because some of them are unnecessary. Gotta get them out of there. I'm with you. The whole Joey Votto, you don't get to decide whether or not I get angry thing is like, yeah, that I that makes sense to me too. Right. But if I'm like if I'm in the car, both Meg and Mike have experienced this to and from the combine. Like the place I am most apt to like get angry and yell at someone is from the safety of my car when they have done something dumb on the highway or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you don't get to decide if I get angry or not, but if 
my demeanor is impacting your safety or like right <laughs> full on road rage and you're <laughs> swerving at someone in traffic yeah 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 that reminds me of the safe you mentioned in his car right I, he had he had a safe in his rolls with like several thousand dollars worth of jewelry in there that got stolen which I guess is why we knew that he had a safe in his car because it was not safe as it turned out. This was I, I don't understand that. Unless you're like <laughs> trying to do like the last half of the Italian job all in 30 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. No, I, I would think I mean not that I'm a car owner or driver, but when I've been in cars, like I <laughs> tried not to like leave anything visible. That could be an incentive to break in there. I mean, when I was uh, little in an earlier era in New York and we had this old uh, beat up used car from the 70s that we parked on the street and it would get sideswiped like every week and it was fine because uh, it was full of dents and dings and it was worthless and like the foam from the ceiling was falling off. But that did get broken into like the windows were shattered and everything. That kind of thing used to happen fairly often. So it was always like, don't leave anything out on the seat that someone might see. If you have a, a safe in there, on the one hand, a safe is supposed to be safe. You're not supposed to be able to break into it. But like, yeah, if you can see that? that there's a safe, it's like, oh, there must be something pretty valuable in there that you would need a safe for. So maybe we should get that safe. And then Does he can... not set the combination or something? It was just like <laughs> I don't know. the same as one, Mel one, Brooks's. One, one. Yeah, it's like well, Mel if you Brooks's could steal the safe thing. itself, then yeah. it, like... Right. Then they have the thief has a, as much a time as cracker. he needs to get into yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Then you get someone who specializes in that sort of thing. Anyway, I have uh, two things to run by you here to see whether you all agree with these theses. Uh, the first is uh, something written by another Philly guy, Jason Stark. So he wrote something for The Athletic. And the headline is how the Orioles, Diamondbacks, and Reds capitalized on MLB's new rules and surprised the sport. Now, Meg, we've talked about all of these teams uh, quite a bit, more than we expected to this season. That's right. I, I talked about the Reds even more with Russell while you were away. This is just, wow. it's gone from never Reds to, to regularly Reds. But Out of control. Jason's thesis here is that maybe these surprise teams are surprising us in part or in large part because they are built for or have capitalized on the new rules. And the evidence for that, it's largely based on base running. They're young and fast and athletic, and they've stolen a lot of bases and stolen bases efficiently. And there's kind of a hodgepodge of other things thrown in there. You know, uh, teams maybe also controlling the running game well, some of them, or the Orioles having a lot of lefty hitters who have a high average on ground balls uh, pulled or, you know, pitch clock violations, not a lot of pitch clock violations. The Orioles uh, have one pitch clock violation on their hitters all season. So it's mostly base running base, but also some other little bits of evidence that are thrown in there to sort of uh, sweeten the package, make the evidence more compelling. And Jason's not saying it's entirely a product of the new rules. He acknowledges like they just have good players, like a lot of new good players <laughs> showed up who would have been good with uh, any rules, right? But he's making a case that this is a big part of it. And this is not something I had 
considered in all our conversations about these teams being good and exceeding expectations, I had not thought to myself, maybe it's because they are taking advantage of the new rules. So having read the evidence laid out here, do you find this compelling? Should we think that they are more believable because they are built to take advantage of the way that baseball is played in 2023? Should we have seen this coming because of the way that they're constructed? I mean, I wrote about this with the the Diamondbacks and the Orioles, at least. I didn't think the Reds were going to be any good, but like you can <laughs> see, and I, Jason's art, article, I think, makes the distinction between sort of backing into the rules favoring the roster they've already constructed versus yeah. trying to go after these things. you know. But you could g- just see with the amount of speed that the Orioles uh, and the Diamondbacks in particular had on the rosters from last year. I think that it was clear that the opportunity there was there to take a leap. And I think the Orioles were my, – my hobby horse for years and years now is that teams are way too conservative on the bases and that the pitch clock and the throwover limits and the slightly bigger bases, all that just – makes it more profitable to go. And so if you have a team full of young and fast guys, then obviously you're going to take care of, uh, you know, you're going to get some kind of advantage from that. You know, I, that said, base running is sort of a marginal thing, even for a team as aggressive as the Orioles or, or the Diamondbacks. So it doesn't explain everything. I think that the, those teams are good now because they were pretty good last year and they've added Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll and, and so on. But yeah, I, I think this was pretty easy to see coming. You know, not to take anything away from from the article, but the signs were there. I think that these, you know, these were teams that could and did run a lot. And if that's you know the the thesis that that you're going under, I think that's been proved out. Especially in the Diamondbacks case, that it is most correct in in that case, I think, because the degree to which they have leaned into and have dudes who like can really run, you know, is it pretty extreme. But I think if like we look at You'd almost have to, you can't like do it for all 30 teams, but like it's not thorough enough. Like it's not really a study, as Ben mentioned, it is like a thesis. If we were looking at some of the other surprising teams across baseball, though, there are some, like there's more supporting evidence here. Like the Marlins are 10 games over 500, and they shifted from, hey, let's add, we need power, let's add Jorge Soler, let's add Ivy Sayo Garcia and these guys to, Let's trade for Joey Wendell and Luisa Rise and sign Gene Segura and like these contact-oriented dudes as the rules change and you know balls in play because infielders aren't positioned as precisely. Balls in play could be more valuable and like they are performing pretty well, right? So like there's some other stuff happening here. It's not like the Phillies have tanked, right? They are the opposite of this. They are a bunch of slow DH dudes who mash and like they are performing about the same as they were at this time last year where they're sort of hovering hovering around 500 and and you know have a chance to sneak in. So like we could go team by team and say hey, you know, this is how these things are are trending. Like the Rangers are not a team constructed right. this way. Like they are conveniently absent from from this list. <laughs> I was, was going to say, yeah, the the Rangers uh, don't really steal many bases at all. Right. They're like toward the bottom of that leaderboard or the base runs leaderboard. Not that I guess it has to apply to every single quote unquote surprise team in order to make some sense. But but yeah, there's a, a little bit of like selective or you know even some teams that are disappointing this season have been running or have good base running numbers too. Like, I mean, looking at the Fangrass base running runs leaderboard, the Dodgers are on top 
The Padres are fourth. The Mets are sixth. I mean, these teams aren't I'm all. Surprised by that. Yeah, these teams aren't all stealing as many bases as, uh, let's say, you know, the Reds are second in steals. The Diamondbacks are fourth. The Orioles are eleventh, right? But they're. If you looked at just like base running runs and and did a correlation between like surprise and in a good way and surprise in a bad way, I'm not sure how clear it would be. I mean, Vogelback was in that commercial, and then they <laughs> yeah, had... he still has not stolen a base. I predicted that he would. I know. Come on, I, well, you got half a season left, yeah. Ben, and I think you're right that it's like a a mix of things. And when you have really good athletes who can then actualize other skills, you're going to take a step forward as a team. And I think Jason acknowledges this, like it helps that the D-backs have potentially the NL MVP just like on their roster now, but they steal a lot of bases. Like they also don't strike out very much as a team. Like I think they're third from the bottom in strikeout rate uh, on the team level. So they're just... I think you have a bunch of guys who can do a bunch of different things. And yes, the the base running is exciting because it correlates to a new rule change and it's fun to watch. And it certainly puts your team in a position to take advantage of good hitting when you're taking the extra base with regularity. But I also think that like these are just good squads. And, you know, you look at Arizona is also bolstered by good pitching at least good starting pitching right so there's there's a lot that goes into the the soup mm-hmm. then there's so many variables change too like yeah. but the schedule i think the schedule format changing is like such a huge deal right. and, and so there are just so many variables that it's hard to nail down what the you know the impacts are of any individual one this isn't even the same Reds team that we had at the beginning of the season, right? Mm-hmm. Like how many dudes are on their roster now who got called up over the course of the last couple of months and are really changing the complexion and trajectory of that team as it starts to coalesce around yeah, their young guys. The so in general, like mm-hmm. yeah. Jake yeah. Fraley getting a chance to play somewhere and doing pretty well while like Steer is good and McLean is good, made changes and is good. And Ellie is his, you know, a singular thing. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if I think even these teams, they vary in how good they are. And as you said, like the composition of the rosters has changed kind of dramatically in some of these cases. But Arizona and Baltimore are seventh and eighth in run differential. The Reds are 18th. They've been outscored on the season. Even during their winning streak, they've had some one-run wins, a bunch of one-run wins in there. I guess you could say that if you're not, you know, walloping your opponents, if you're having to eke out wins, then things like uh, taking longer leads and going first to third or or scoring from first on a single, which Corbin Carroll just somehow did the other day, those things can make more of a difference, maybe potentially if you're in that bucket. But I guess it just kind of comes down to like, if you believe in the base running stats that we have, as Mike was saying, like it seems somewhat marginal. I mean, just like the scale, the difference between teams is not great. It's not enough to account for a team having a surprising season. Like, you know, the Diamondbacks are, for one thing, they were already really good at this before, right? Like they they led the majors in base running runs last year by quite a bit, and they weren't the surprise team of 2022. So just that alone is, is not enough to explain why they're better now. They were already 
good. Maybe they were even better relative to the league before. So, you know, like you look at base running runs at fan graphs and we're talking eight or nine runs so far above average when it comes to Arizona or Cincinnati and Baltimore less than that. And if you look at baseball prospectus, uh, Arizona's at the top, but 11 runs and then the Reds third at like five or six runs and then the Orioles, they actually have negative somehow. So I also got some stats from Robert Au at Baseball Prospectus that's basically base running runs allowed by a team, which ranges from the Nationals allowing 6.6 more runs than average to Atlanta preventing 12.4 more runs than average. Arizona, Cincinnati, and Baltimore are all within one run of average. I don't know. I don't know that that can explain that much of it. I'm, like, I wonder if that's one of those things sort of like reliever war where maybe it, it yeah. pops up in situational ways that aren't really well accounted for by counting stats. Yeah. The other yeah. thing I'd advance or other theory I'd advance sort of go off something Eric said a couple minutes ago is that all these rule changes and the schedule changes too coming in at once sort of reminds me of Formula One where the teams, you know, they get a new rule set and all the cars look different as everybody is trying to build the best car for the new regulations. And then over the course of a couple of years, they figure out what the best way is and everybody converges strategically. And so then they change the rules again to sort of shake up the order. And baseball doesn't do that. This is the first time that that MLB has really made a big in-game, you know, last time that MLB made a big rule, rule change in terms of gameplay like this was the DH. And so I wonder if this is just opening up different competitive avenues as everybody tries to figure out like the best stylistic way to play for these rule sets. Yeah, I hope so. That would be fun and entertaining. And yeah, to their credit, Stark talked to all the executives who constructed these rosters and they all acknowledged like, yeah, we we didn't necessarily build our team to capitalize on rules changes that we didn't know were going to be made. It's just we were built that way already and maybe we leaned into it and capitalized on the situation. But again, like you could come up with counterexamples like wouldn't you have thought that, oh, the Guardians are built for baseball in 2023. That's something people were saying this spring. I, I remember that coming up on our team preview podcast for the Guardians. It's like, hey, they're young and they're speedy and they're fast and they put the ball in play and they've been disappointing, right? So I just, I don't know that it holds. I mean, I think more important than whether this explains why they're good and why they've exceeded expectations, it's definitely fun. <laughs> like it, it makes them much more Interesting. Yeah. That, the buzz in the you yeah. know at Great American Ballpark when you put the, the, that team on TV is like wow this is a fun place to watch baseball right now everyone is super stoked mm-hmm. and yeah like it, it's amazing I can't believe TJ Friedel is leading this team in war and also it's been a shockingly long, long time since like the TJ Friedel undrafted free agent yeah. story was like a thing to care about do you guys remember this. It was 2016. Friedel I was definitely dra- do. But so yeah. like Friedel was draft eligible sophomore in 2016, and some subset of the industry just did not know that he went undrafted at a time when like it was much harder to be undrafted. Yeah, the draft was just much longer in 2016. Then Friedel is part of T- Co- Collegiate Team USA after the draft. Again, he was like totally passed over and looks incredible. And all of a sudden, there's a bidding war with teams that had leftover draft pool bonus money, which is, you know, at that time was a sign like that you weren't doing it right. Like to have $700,000 worth of unspent 
bonus pool money after the draft is like a dereliction of your duty. And yet the Reds like, you know, outbid everyone for Friedel. They gave him 700K uh, as an undrafted free agent, like late in the signing period as a college outfielder from Nevada. And it's taken over a half decade for that guy to get his footing in the big leagues. And now he's the, the team's war leader as we're sitting here right now. Yeah, there's definitely something strange going on this season because the standings are surprising on the whole and things are topsy-turvy and people have written about this. Neil Payne just wrote about this. Like there's basically zero correlation between payroll and success so far this season. A lot of the teams that are disappointing are big spenders and then, you know, you could make like the Mets payroll is uh, probably like the size of, I don't know, several teams that have way outperformed the Mets combined at this point, and maybe that's just like a fluky half-season thing. I think the Mets payroll is basically equal to like the Rays and the Orioles and the Reds and the Diamondbacks put together. So like, there's definitely something sort of unusual happening here. And you might be tempted to say, well, it's uh, unusual results. What else is unusual? The rules are different. So there's probably a connection there. And there might be, but I guess I'm unconvinced that that explains a lot of it. And Neil also, he had a, a metric that he made before the season started. He called it like a Manfred score or something, which tried to predict which teams were better positioned to capitalize on the new rules based on how fast they were and how often they shifted and that sort of thing. And he found that there's like an extremely weak correlation between that and how teams have actually done this season. So that would speak to the idea that maybe it wasn't all that foreseeable, but I guess, you know, you could come up with any number of ways to try to quantify how well-constructed teams are for baseball in 2023. I'm just saying, I think it's maybe a slight reach. I, I'm like, I'm marveling at how fun and fast and speedy and aggressive these suddenly good and exciting and entertaining teams are, but I don't know that I'm drawing a direct line there. It's like, Ellie De La Cruz is awesome, but, you know, <laughs> Gunnar Henderson is awesome. Like, all these guys are awesome. Corbin Carroll's awesome. Like, that's why they're good. <laughs> you can also point to, like, the D-backs and say Perdomo, Geraldo Perdomo is performing above his actual ability, and, like, Zach Gallon right. has been healthy, and they mm -hmm. upgraded the right-handed part of their platoon situation with Longoria and Guriel during the offseason, and they made the back of their bullpen. It's not, like, awesome, but, like, Chafin and those guys like Miguel Castro, they're better than what they had at the back of their bullpen last year. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with the rule changes. There are other reasons that they are, like, much better. Well, and, like, baseball, both recently and over the course of its history, is, is littered with guys who are, like, plus athletes who run really well and don't do anything with that, even in environments and eras where base stealing was more common than it is now. So it isn't, you know, it's a necessary condition to take advantage of these rule changes, but I don't think it's sufficient to bolster the fortunes of a team on its own because, you know, some you got to be able to hit and like work again and, and pitch and, you know, pitching. Mm -hmm. You got to do that too, if that piece of it kind of important. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That is important, and that's an excellent segue to the next and last thing that I wanted to bring up in the banter portion here, because Patrick Dubuque, a friend of ours, uh, we admire his work at Baseball Prospectus, wrote a piece called Bad Bullpens Are Good Business, and this also touches on the unpredictability of baseball this season and just in general, and basically he made the case that 
Take the Dodgers, for instance, who have had a, an underperforming bullpen, like a really bad bullpen by Dodger standards, although they didn't have a lot of trouble with the Angels this week. But he kind of made the case that this can be bad for the fans of that team, but it's good for baseball in general for a couple of reasons. One, because it's kind of unpredictable from a season-long standpoint, that bullpens are variable, that we can't really predict bullpen results all that well, but they are important. And so when you look at the teams that were projected to have the best bullpens, and then you look at the teams that have actually had the best bullpens, often there's a big disconnect there. And sometimes that can be the driving force behind a surprise season. Case in point, the Orioles and Reds are one and two in Fangrass bullpen war. And then also argued that that applies on a game level as well, because when you have a bad bullpen, the outcome of the game is more uncertain. And he brought up the 2015 Royals and their kind of clockwork late inning bullpen where they had just, you know, set seventh, eighth inning, ninth inning guys, and they were kind of automatic, as automatic as a bullpen can be. And Patrick made the case that that was actually boring, that it just reduced uncertainty about who was going to pitch and when they were going to pitch and were they going to cough up a lead. Like, obviously, we, we like some suspense and we like surprising outcomes and we like comebacks. So therefore, it would be boring. Maybe it would follow that uh, having a really stable bridge at the back of your bullpen and just uh, shut down arms back there who were constantly locking down leads would be boring and bad for baseball. So do you buy that bad bullpens are good for baseball? I understand that people's preferred baseball aesthetics are their own thing and think that any individual is welcome to their own preferred baseball aesthetic. I don't think guys coming in and like breathing fire is boring, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I can see, like I understand that the the notion that a game never really being out of reach or being less likely to be out of reach because of the volatility of bullpens makes the outcomes of the game potentially more interesting. Like that just seems like a logical conclusion to draw that when the outcome of a game is in doubt, the game therefore is more interesting to watch as someone like my personal, the way I engage with baseball is, wow, look how talented these guys are. And so when Araldis Chapman comes in, I don't go, this is boring, Mm -hmm. but that's me. Definitely not now. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wasn't boring when he was oozing pus out of his tattoo wound. <laughs> That's interesting in its own way. Uh, and, you know, not throwing strikes is, you know, like, oh, here it goes. This guy's, you know, melting down. I feel bad for the Homer Simpson character who's responsible for said bullpen meltdowns. But it is, I guess, interesting in a, in a macabre way at the very least. So is it good for baseball as a whole, like the business of baseball? I don't know. That's a pretty, like, weighty statement to make like, yeah, it would be really good if we weren't good at developing pitchers. Wouldn't that make us much more interesting to watch if our pitchers were worse? Like that doesn't really track for me. But the, the statement, hey, when the game's outcome is in doubt, therefore it is more interesting to watch the rest of that game. Yeah, like that, that makes sense to me. I think that tracks. I want to say it tracks entirely for me. I think Patrick's exactly right. The mm-hmm. pit, I mean, this has been my thing for years is that pitchers are too good. And <laughs> 
we're too good at developing pitchers. And as much as I'm, you know, ensorcelled by the guys who throw 103 with a, you know, a killer slider, the kind of person who'd show up once every 15 years for most of baseball history and is now there's two of them in every bullpen. That's very impressive to watch. But if the game's out of reach in a three run game and, you know, in the sixth inning, then what are we even doing here? So I, you know, particularly in the playoffs. And so I, you know, I know this might sound like sour grapes to, coming from someone whose team was just bombed out of the World Series by one of the best <laughs> playoff bullpens ever assembled. But, like, but the Phillies you know, bullpen I, was surprisingly successful in the postseason, too. That was yeah, part of the reason they made that deep run. So, And now, you know, Jose Alvarado's reliable and Sir Anthony Dominguez isn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, unpredictability, I think, is the is the way I would like to go. I, I'm also one of those weirdos who I think that a sport can get so solved that it takes some of the chaos out of it. And this is eventually, I was told we were going to talk about college baseball at some point. But <laughs> I'm just going to string you along until it's time to end this. the episode. Oh, we, yeah. oh we, we, we meant to talk As about we oh, enter maybe next time. Does this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like, I mean, looking back to those 2014-2015 Royals teams, they were entertaining for any number of reasons. But the Holland-Davis-Herrera trifecta, that was pretty fun. Well, it was and novel. I think it, it's why yeah, it maybe, fun. It, maybe, maybe, maybe it was that it was unusual or or new or extraordinary, and I I think it kind of helped them compensate for maybe some shortcomings in other areas of the roster. I remember Sam wrote something in 2014 about how the Royals played like a different team depending on whether they were ahead or behind in the game relative to the rest of the league. They performed better once they had a lead than they did when they were trailing because they could deploy that shutdown bullpen. And I guess in 2014, it was maybe more shut down or those particular three guys were more shut down than they were the following year. But but there was kind of like a clockwork satisfaction to that where you could sort of see the rest of the game laid out before you. It's like, if we could get a lead here, then we know what's going to happen next, which I guess is an argument against it being entertaining because as you're saying, unpredictability and suspense are good. But Ask Jordan Alvarez if if Jose Alvarado's stuff was too good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And Mike wasn't at the at the Combine high school game two days ago as like guys were coming out of the bullpen and not throwing strikes. It, I couldn't feel how giddy you were next to me, Mike, watching that unfold. You weren't like, yeah, this is super interesting now that these guys are walking every other guy. Yeah, no, because I was I was sitting through a 12-inning game that didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> No one wants to see that. I guess, like, I agree with the macro statement that we don't want the game to be too solved. And, like, I do feel like there's enough surprise year to year. I'm trying not to, for instance, have the fact that we just talked about how good the Reds, Diamondbacks, and Orioles are sort of color my perception of that. And, like, you know... Sometimes you have a really good bullpen, your team still sucks um, or is middling. I guess that is mm-hmm. probably a better descriptor for Seattle right now. So I yeah. don't know. I think um, if anyone's cracked the bullpen code, it seems to be Seattle. They just like remade their bullpen right. and it's still good again somehow. Right. But, yeah. It's yeah. like Trevor got sure. Let's go. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to take the the opposite side of, of Bauman here if for, for no other reason than like I got to. Uh, also experience a team I care about engage with playoff baseball for the first time in a while. And I was like, this is terrifying and sucks. And um, I prefer to not 
do it again quite like this and, you know, being able to get Jordan Alvarez out would have been nice, like a couple of times <laughs> in certain opportune moments. So yeah. as an, as an anxious bear, I'm like, mm, <laughs> you know, shut down guys for days. Let's go. Yeah. The thing is, there's nothing more annoying in any given game for that team's fans than a bad yeah. bullpen. A bad right, bullpen yeah. is that can make a team unwatchable or extremely frustrating. Like there's nothing like, I mean, as a fan of a team, you always want that team to win. So if it's predictable that it's going to win, you're probably fine with that. But blowing leads, never feeling confident in a lead scoring and then immediately giving back those runs. I'm not saying that there's necessarily like a psychological blow, as you often hear announcers say, to not having a shutdown inning or whatever. But as a fan, it can be pretty deflating when it's like, well, we have a lead, but we don't have anyone we can trust not to cough up that lead. And I guess as great as a come from behind win is, and it's even greater when it comes against a shutdown bullpen, a fall from a head loss is uh, equally dispiriting, if not maybe more dispiriting. And half the people watching any given game are people who are watching the team with the bad bullpen in that scenario. So that can really make it a lot less fun to watch for at least uh, one party involved. And I don't know if it equalizes on the other side. I also think that these bullpens are inflating expectations that like if you have it like that, we just don't a lot of fans, particularly fans of good teams like the Dodgers, who you know Patrick wrote about, they expect to just be able to conjure five closer quality relievers. And if you don't have that, right. you don't feel safe. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, <laughs> no team's supposed to have five closer quality relievers that they can throw in every single game. Mm-hmm. So, like, experience a little peril for once in your life. <laughs> Jesus. Just everyone wants to be coddled with the uh, unhittable bullpen guys. It is sort of the Dodgers' hubris that has brought them to this place. And some of it is deserved, right? Because they did just pull Blake Trinan. Like, Blake Trinan got non-tendered. And they just have, because of the Dodgers, they have $10, $15 million in the couch cushions to say, hey, like, come on down, Corey Knable. We know that your, like, arm is barely attached to you, but let's, we know your, your breaking ball quality is really good, and let's try to give you this new grip on your slider, which is like what they've done with Evan Phillips and it's what they did with Trinan and it's like what they have done reliably with a lot of these guys. But when all of a sudden you look up and the back of your bullpen is Phillips, Bruce Argraterol, whose fastball doesn't really play, Yancy Almonte, who's, you know, a scrap heap pickup from the Rockies, who they definitely made better, but it's not like you want to hand that guy the ball in the eighth inning and you're stoked about it, right? Like it's... I think that, yeah, like they, the Dodgers do crank these guys out like nothing because they have some of the best player dev in, in the business. The Dodgers have taken the approach all year with their whole roster. Like, let's let these kids play and see how it goes. And with some of them, it's like, wow, James Outman's great. And then everyone adjusted to him. And, oh, Miguel Vargas turns out like he's only okay probably. And, you know, he can't really play defense anywhere. And that's kind of true of Max Muncy too. And, you know, like they are a flawed team overall. And now they have the resources because they're the Dodgers to like add to that team. And it's just about when they do it and how they decide to do it. But like they could put Emmett Sheehan or Bobby Miller in the bullpen and they're going to be awesome. And some of this is the, the playoff format because if you're the Dodgers and you eke in and your playoff rotation is your best four guys and then the other, you know, like the Astros last year, like go ahead, Luis Garcia and Jose Urquidy, 
even though you'd be the third best starter on like most teams in baseball, you're in our bullpen now. Like the Dodgers do get to to make those moves come postseason time and say, all right, Emmett Sheehan, throw your fastball 70% of the time. While, you know, if the Mariners get in, Bryce Miller, who has to operate that way because that's the only thing he has, that's like an above average pitch. Brian Wu, same thing. Like, good luck getting through the Rangers lineup four times. It's a different question in the regular season and then in the playoffs. Like, the, it's just a fundamentally different problem you're trying to solve with your pitching staff in both scenarios. And so I think that, you know, the what your opinion about how relief pitchers are or aren't too good, like, it's going to vary depending on whether you're talking about the regular season or, or the postseason. Yeah, and and I guess a bad bullpen is maybe more palatable in the era of the pitch clock in the three-batter minimum because in the past, the late innings would really bog down when bullpen guys weren't getting outs because they would slow down, right, especially with runners on base, and then you'd have uh, mixing and matching and constant pitching changes, and that was really bad from a spectator standpoint, whereas now it moves along even if guys aren't getting outs, so the downside is removed or at least removed. Reduced. All right. We've talked about pros plenty here. I promised we would talk about amateurs. <laughs> so let's talk about some amateurs. The College World Series starts on Saturday, and there was a big game to decide the matchup of the College World Series on Thursday. It had to be a big game because I was aware that it was I really being enjoyed played. that you're leading this off by not knowing what the College World Series is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know it like describes the the whole thing, right? But but like the end of it, <laughs> the, the College climax. World Series finals. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm used to the World Series describing the final already. It sounds redundant to me <laughs> to have to say yeah. the College World Series that, final. I That's not my that fault. I have That's their fault. Talk to him about this. <laughs> before now and him not retaining it does not indicate that I haven't said this anything. Is like I just want that on the record. In NPB, when the non-final rounds are called the Climax Series, and it's like, it's not the Climax. Like, this is the prelude to <laughs> the Climax. Funny. This is foreplay here. And this yeah, is... It's, and, it's, at least two of the teams that made the College World Series wouldn't have shown up for something that called that was called the Climax <laughs> Series, which is based on the... You can't even show that stuff in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Thursday, there was this big matchup. I saw a headline at Baseball America that said, and I hope I'm pronouncing these names right. I never know. Oh, my Even God. when I'm talking about the top God. prospects in the country is Paul Skeens versus yeah. Rhett Lauder. Yep. All right. Nailed it. The best pitching matchup in College World Series history. That was by J.J. Cooper. And then the next day or after the game, there's an MLB.com piece that said, was this the best pitching duel in College World Series history? So mm. it did deliver. Now, I can't answer that question, obviously, in a quantitative way. And Betteridge's law of headlines would suggest that the answer is no. But it sounded like it had a pretty good case from what I know. So, I mean, there are so many times when the pitcher's duel doesn't deliver. But in this case, it did. And it went to extra innings and was uh, super exciting. And then I called uh, Tommy Tank's walk-off. Oh, nice. Did you call it on the, the hamburger phone? No, I just called it in in the, in the room to, to, to <laughs> okay. Eric and Bauman because right. they were standing there. Well, yeah, they I can, was making they pasta at you. the Southwest Desert Compound. We, were, we started watching that game at the Combine still because we were waiting for Will Sanders, who stood Mike up. I, for his wow, Alana. I did not mean to blow up. I did not intend to blow him up, but apparently you've got no compunctions about tanking <laughs> no, his draft stock. 
What am I going to do? The kid had to go to his MRI and was worried that he was going to, this is the explanation we received, you know, was worried he was going to be late for it. And it's totally fine. Like, I'm not going to, he's good. He's a good prospect. It's totally fine. He was the <laughs> one South Carolina player on, I had on my dance card for all the interviews <laughs> I did this week. And I'm going to shit talk him at all the alumni functions. That's his punishment for blowing off the interview. So we, if this poor kid listens to the pod, he's going to be so stressed. It's, it's okay, young man. Anyway, the two two first round pitching talents here going head to head to decide who gets to to be in the the College World Series final, and uh, the stakes are are high. So, and they both uh, pitch really well. One of them threw like 120 pitches, and the other threw what 88 pitches or something. But they were both excellent, and the game was uh, close and fun. So. I, I guess if you can still ask the question after the game about whether it was the best pitching duel in College World Series history, then it had to uh, be pretty entertaining. There had to be some Garrett Cole, you know, versus somebody else that was Garrett that was Cole up got there. torched in his oh, College right. World Series final appearance against South Carolina, who started Blake Cooper, who didn't really have a pro career. It's not just that these are like you get two first rounders up against each other in a you know, in a series this or in a, a game this important basically every year, it's that Skeens has this much hype and Ladder is probably the second best college pitcher in this draft class. Like he's fourth, but okay. This entire college world series has <laughs> has had just a huge it like they've been saying best ever since day one because day one included two teams winning games that they trailed in, I think in the eighth inning or later and just the amount of star power between LSU and Wake Forest and Florida um, and Virginia's got a bunch of really talented players as well and just the drama that everything has lived up to expectations and there was really cool stylistic contrast between Skeens and Louder and the fact that their teams around them were just completely loaded. Like these are, you know, LSU is the most talented team in the in college baseball. Wake Forest has been the best team in college baseball. These are the only two teams that have been ranked number one all season. And so like you look at this and like obviously this is going to be one of the most hyped games in college baseball history. And it lived up to the to the hype and then some. And, you know, Skeens and Ladder both pitched really well. The winning run was scored by Dylan Cruz, driven in by Tommy White. And these, like, Skeens and Cruz and White are probably the big three biggest stars in college baseball this year. And LSU goes on to face Florida, who's got um, Wyatt Langford, who's going to be a, probably a top three pick. Jack Caglione, who's going to be in the conversation for 1-1. For one, one. Like, just the amount of talent that's been on display and has shown up in a big way in the College World Series has been almost unprecedented, I think. It will be the best pitching matchup in College World Series history until and unless Skeens faces any of the Florida starters in a decisive game, right? Like, I don't know. I think that it's, the, we have Florida and LSU now starting this weekend. And I think between the two teams, we have Skeens, we have Cruz, I don't know if Tommy White is necessarily going to be a first rounder, but there's a shot. Like there will be something like a half dozen between like six and eight first round talents over the course of the next couple of drafts on the field at any given time, which was also true of the LSU, you know, wake matchup. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag because the, the way the NIL and transfer portal stuff has impacted college baseball has made it so things like this can be possible where we do have, King Kong versus Godzilla at the end here over and over again. Uh, it might wreck parody across college baseball. It's super weird that like there's no parody in college baseball. Everything's been flowing like everything's been flowing southeast for 10 years. But it's it's 
at a different extreme now, though. Like it has been since I've you know since I've been a full time baseball writer. It is rare for any of the West Coast college teams to host a regional. Period. Unless it's Stanford and maybe UCLA. Like that's sort of it. It's super rare. Uh, U of A has had it like one time. Uh, over the last, you know, six years, seven years or so since I've been doing this full time, right? But so you're right, you're right in that sense. But when the freshman second baseman at Utah Valley is really talented and interesting, he is not going to necessarily move the needle for that entire team during the course of his career at Utah Valley. But now he's not going to have a career that spans multiple years at Utah Valley. Like he's likely to go into the transfer portal and end up at one of these schools. Uh, so like, you know, what it means for the ecosystem of college baseball, I don't really know. I think that this dynamic will have like a weird impact where like the gap between the haves and have nots will grow even more than, you know, it already is large. But, uh, but yeah, like at this time of year, it is a lot of fun. There were at, you know, at Chase Field yesterday, the, thank you to the people who have been like taking care of us up in the suites, by the way, yeah. like the snacks and water and stuff. But like yeah. one of the women who was in charge of that was running around around, you know, game time with a remote to change all the TVs from the draft combine like screensaver to the College World Series game that like all the executives and scouts in the suites wanted to have on. And so it's, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. I obviously don't have like a great sense of what the the online fervor is like because I've like removed myself from that, but I bet it's, it sounds like people are are more interested in it now than ever before. Some of that is because all the other sports are kind of done. Uh, but yeah, like I, these two teams are slamming the, the that are left uh, Florida and LSU. Like if I, I really think Ben, like you should give it a, the old college try literally. <laughs> and like you'd be surprised watching some of these dudes do their thing. Like, I can't believe you don't, you know, well, know who Jack Caglione yes, is. Yes, I, I, I do. And I was going to ask you about him that uh, Bauman just mentioned on Florida because, uh, of course, the, the Otani oh, comps are been saying thrown Otani, around. Yeah. The Jack Tani, I'm sure that is uh, completely fair to set those expectations for him. But, I mean, he's getting the passing profile treatment, right, about his potential to be a two-way player. I think every time we've had you on to talk about the draft, Eric, I always ask about two-way guys and potential two-way guys. So how excited should I actually be about his two-way potential? You should temper your expectations somewhat because like the chase component for Caglione at the dish is like extremely concerning. But in terms of guys who have this much power and who have like this good of stuff on the mound, it's, you know, Brendan McKay is the last college player where the combo has been I don't this think McKay had strong. this much power, but he was a McKay was a much better pitcher, I think. He was a much better pitcher in terms of like the craft of pitching, but didn't have the same yeah. arm strength. And I would say that the power, Caglione's power potential is definitely above what McKay's was, but McKay had plus raw. Like it was, it was real. Uh, being at that ACC tournament with him and Drew Ellis, you know, they did some ridiculous things. I was surprised. I think I left. You know, I went to that ACC tournament thinking that McKay was a pitching-only prospect and left wondering if it was actually plausible to let him, at the very least while he was still going to be on an innings cap in pro ball, do a little bit of both so that you could decide and know which of the two was the right avenue to choose. 
like have a longer runway to, to make that decision. But with Caglione, you know, the, the play discipline component is scary, but yeah, it's like plus or better raw power on a college freshman and, you know, mid to upper 90s arm strength that he holds and, you know, nasty breaking ball. Like it is pretty crazy. And you can count on one hand the number of guys, period, regardless of the arena that I've seen like do stuff like this. Uh, and Hurston Waldrip too, you know, I have, uh, Hurston Waldrip for me will be a, he's a slam dunk top 100 prospect, you know, it, it, as soon as he's puts pen to paper on his pro contract, like he's, he's in that mix. And so both those guys are part of Florida's rotation. Like it is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, so I Trans- say this transfer from Southern Miss, by the way, I say this about Cat Leon, like. I think you. I think he's closer to AJ Reed than Shohei Otani, but you can be closer to AJ Reed than Shohei Otani and still be a good big leaguer. <laughs> like that's how good Otani is, and how unfair it is to compare anybody to him. Plus, we can call him the Jack Wagon. You just like him because he's Italian. Like, it's one of the reasons I like him. It's not the only reason, but it is. It is among the reasons. And you look at him, and you're like, yeah, that guy's Italian. I do not know if the squeeze play people got a letter. From the FCC about how often they said Jack Wagon on the broadcast. Jack Wagon. Jack Wagon. <laughs> it's cable. I mean, it's, it's Jack Wagon. Is that even cable? That might just no. be streaming. Like, I guess Jack right. Wagon. Yeah, maybe it isn't cable. But, you know, like Rune's, any, you know, I love Mike Rooney and Chris Budden. And I think that the rally cap and squeeze play people, like, I think that this, that's the some of the best sports television there is. Chris yeah. Burke is all, excellent as well. All the ESPN college baseball folks are really great. But yeah, like, I just, even I, who tend to push the envelope with stuff like that, would not just be like, yeah, Jack Wagon, Jack Wagon, Jack Wagon. <laughs> Jack Wagon. And while we have you guys here, we talked about this not long ago, but the pitch count question keeps coming up, right? There's a yeah. Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal Jared Diamond piece uh, out on Friday. Pitch counts are only suggestions at the College World Series in an era where MLB teams treat their pitchers like porcelain dolls. College pitchers are bucking the trend. And it talks about how Skeens has thrown at least 120 pitches in a game this month three times and no major league pitcher has done it in a game once this season. And we obviously talked about the distinctions between the senior who's never going to pitch again and this is his last time out there and he's leaving it all out on the field and prospects who actually have promising futures ahead of them and are potentially being mishandled. But do you see this as a pervasive problem still and is it fair to point to particular pitchers and pitch counts and single out those coaches or those programs as offenders? I think you want to be careful about giving people too much leeway because you don't want them to essentially like abuse the physical health of amateur athletes for their own gain. Um, I think in Skeen's case things are okay. Like, I've never yeah. been offended by the amount of pitches he has thrown. There have Yesterday, been, I think, pushed it. I think he went an inning too long, and I think you could see it. You could see him yes. gassing. Yeah, um, the quality of contact in that last inning yesterday was meaningfully different than before. Uh, but because it's college baseball and there's more rest built into their schedule, and in Skeen's case specifically, he is such a physical monster – and he's still like reaching back and holding 100 miles per hour late in some of these starts. His last pitch, like 120, whatever it was, was 100 miles an hour even yesterday. And this was the this yesterday was the first time that he had thrown on short rest in 
in, in this the tournament, tournament yeah, run, I don't right? remember if he'd done it earlier in the season, but like yeah, I don't remember seven days or, or six days rest is different than four days. And I think like, I right. didn't love him going to 120, but Eric, I'll let you finish. I'll come back to, I would, I guess I, I would say I would stop short of calling what seems to be people's issue with some of this stuff concern trolling, but it is approaching. It, it is approaching it. It is like more likely to be that than it is like an actual pervasive issue. I think that once Paul Skeens is done with his college career here, that he is probably done for this calendar year. Like I would be right. surprised if whoever ends up drafting him is like, yeah, go to Fredericksburg or whatever. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that like he's going to empty the tank and be done. Yeah. And for a thing like this in this environment with the amount of space that is typically between starts for college pitchers, that it is mostly okay. But yeah, like there, for sure there have been instances in individual cases. Uh, I think it was Anthony Kay at UConn yeah. where like, he threw a complete game in the conference tournament on a Friday and then like on Sunday came out of the bullpen and threw like another 70 pitches. He threw like over 200 pitches over the span of like three or four days. Like you can't do stuff like that. Obviously the NIL stuff probably changes the conversation to a degree uh, because now we're not just talking about purely amateur athletes in the same sense that we were before. Uh, and like that's nuance that I'm sure gets lost in some of the discussion that's happening in the forums that it you know is taking place in. But yeah, like obviously, like you don't just want to be like ah, it's fine, and let you know these college coaches who tend to be selfish dictate the well-being of the athletes. But in the high-profile case that you know we're talking about now, I think things had mostly been okay. Yeah, I think LSU's handling of schemes in particular has gone up to the line. And so what Eric was saying about West Coast teams not hosting regionals anymore, this is why. This is like not like money or NIL. It's because there's a philosophical difference, mostly based on geography. I, you know, I, I think it's reductive to call it the Augie Garrido coaching tree. But West Coast teams, particularly, you know, some of the mid-major teams that have been dominant out there, like Cal State Fullerton, have absolutely shredded their pitchers. And teams from back east, particularly in the SEC, have recruited them back to the Stone Age. And, you know, even guys who come out of that school, like Kirk Sarlis, who was a Fullerton pitcher, was a Fullerton pitching coach, like he got he spent his entire draft year closing on Fridays and starting on Sundays. And as recently as 2015, uh, Fullerton had Tom Eshelman, who was a, tw- who was a second round pick. They threw him long enough in, I think it was the super regional against Louisville that he threw a hundred strikes and they're, you know, bringing guys out of the bullpen on short rest. Like, you know, schemes we could talk. And even Jay Johnson, who's the coach at LSU was He's a West Coast guy, and the last time he was in the College World Series with Arizona in 2016 was one of the either 16 or 17, the, the year they played Coastal. Um, that was one of the last, like, great, like, over-the-line pitching abuse college postseasons out there. I think this is a problem that's mostly taking care of itself, but, you know, we can debate about schemes. We can debate about guys throwing 120 on seven days rest. Like, that's versus 100 on, on four or five days rest. Like, I think that's you could talk about it and you could talk about whether these are important games and whether that justifies a little bit extra risk. But 
there's no excuse to ever throw a pitcher 156 pitches like Quinn Matthews yeah. did in the Super. And yeah, like not. this is yes. not like this is a senior. This is like a grinder, but he's a prospect. Even if he wants to, you have to, as like the adult in the room, you have yes. to keep him from himself in that yeah. moment. And so, you know, and you look at what this does, like you look at Kent Emanuel back in 2013, you know, how much he got thrown at, at uh, North Carolina. And, you know, if I were, if I were recruiting against Stanford, like I'd, this is what I'd lead with. And so it's not surprising that the players are fleeing, you know, programs that do that. And I've, you know, I've been disappointed a couple of times this postseason in how cavalier some of these schools have been in terms of taking care of pitchers. Cause I thought this was something that we were putting behind us, but I think it's definitely less common than it was like, it was the norm, you know, you just right. throw until your arm falls off as, as recently as eight to 10 years ago. And I think that's, it's getting squeezed out of the game, you know? And I think I agree with Eric that like the backlash against LSU's treatment of schemes is it borders on concern trolling, but like there's no excuse for 156. You just can't yeah. you just can't tolerate that. It's almost like it's it's like a healthy just as the same as LSU has sort of towed the line so too has the conversation. Yeah. towed the the line of like, you know, like realism basically. Uh but yeah, and and it's so specific to Skeens. It you know, the way I feel about it is specific to like his physicality. It is so different than all of like, even if we're talking about the guys who have been the most talented uh, pitching prospects of the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, I think on the broadcast yesterday, they were just like, it's this guy, Strasburg and uh, Mark Pryor and Garrett Cole, right? Like Garrett Cole, I think was at a different, like totally different level uh, than any of these other Guys, but yeah, like Skeens in that in the next tier, he's in that group in terms of like what his stuff is like for a college pitcher, and physically he's in he's a built different like a class. centaur. Yes, like, <laughs> like you think yeah, of, not like, Strasburg or Pryor that level. Yeah, Strasburg and Pryor were yeah were sort of wiry. Like guys like Cole Cole and Carlos Rodon are like thick, and Skeens is a different level of big even beyond that. Well, and I think that this is always. I, I have sympathy for the sort of baseline level of discomfort with approaching that line. Cause I think like Eric, I think you're right that the NIL stuff changes things, but even the most lucrative NIL deals aren't going to approach like the signing bonus that Skeens will get, right? Like they're going to be many zip codes apart from one another, but whenever we're dealing with these guys, it's like, yeah, you have the general sort of pitch smart guidelines and we don't, know what pitch number is going to be the one that blows out a guy's elbow. And so even as you're trying to negotiate, I think, what is good general guidance, like you're still dealing with an N of one with any of these particular dudes. And so I think that if it's not, you know, egregious and you're not going up to, you know, you don't have to be at 156 pitches for it to be something that I think would be alarming. Right. And I think, you can have some sympathy for them trying to find where the point is in between those things. And this is like meaningful baseball to these players and these fans. And I have sympathy for the idea of college baseball fans being like, we aren't just a feeder program for professional baseball. Like this has intrinsic value. And so negotiating between all of those different interests leaves me thinking that like in Skeens' case, and it seems fine. I would, be concerned if he has another really long short rest start. Like I think we're 
getting into the territory where how he is deployed going forward is going to be, you know, subject to fair scrutiny, right? Just because of, it's been a lot of pitches now, he's officially gone on short rest, and this is a dude who is two and a half weeks away from a really big bonus. Like, let's make sure that he's going to stay in in good shape, and then you can rest him the rest of the year. Yeah, I don't want to see him again for the rest of the College World Series. And I suspect that we will. And like, I bet, yeah. Yes. And then we're going to have to have another conversation about it because I I doubt his his time in Omaha is done. If there's an if necessary game Monday and he comes out of the bullpen, how many pitches before you go tisk tisk tisk? I would say like 25. Yeah. And I think that's essentially what you throw on your bullpen day on, you know, that part of the cycle anyway. And so I would be okay if if on Monday, on three days rest, right, Friday, Saturday, yeah, he throws 25 pitches out of the bullpen like, you know, Randy Johnson in 01, like, I'm cool with that. But anything beyond that is probably now we're like, yeah. But that's not how college relief aces get used. Like, if he's coming out of the pen, he's probably throwing 40 plus. Yeah. So you guys have been at the Combine for the past couple of days. You've seen players put through their paces. Eric, I imagine we will talk to you next month after the draft, and we'll get into a lot of those individual talents. And you just did your draft rankings update for the site, and I'm sure you'll be mock drafting. But I would be curious about any thoughts you have just about the evolution of the Combine over the years, so since it's not exactly an institution. It's a fairly recent addition to baseball. And and just the way it's changed and I guess the part that it's playing in scouting and draft prep and determining draft position these days. This is the third combine. They are still polishing up like basically every aspect of it, including like where it is. And, you know, there are just things that you don't know until you start to the machinery of the event begins. And, you know, you have to tweak things as you go. I think, you know, the big hurdle for the combine has been because of how baseball works, the agents slash advisors who represent the players are just a much bigger part of the process than they are in basically any other sport. Uh, So, you know, the NFL and the NBA both have draft combines and it's common for the very best dudes in each of those sports to kind of bow out of that space because they don't have anything to gain. They are going to go in the top, you know, a couple of picks anyway, whether or not they do uh, the combine. And so, and they also have like pro day type alternatives and that's true of baseball too. But in basketball and football where you get picked dictates what your bonus is. There's not like wiggle room for negotiating like there is in baseball. Uh, And so like the agents just play a bigger piece of, you know, whatever negotiating process takes place in baseball. And so, you know, their incentives for their clients and what might happen at the combine uh, are a little bit different. Like things are just murkier and they're more varied player to player. The fact that you have college and high school prospects is also a dynamic that is unique to baseball uh, and changes how you look at things, especially when some of the physical testing that's going on at the combine you know, is is going to create, you know, there's going to be disparity between the grip strength of the high school prospects on average and the college prospects on average. And, you know, pick whatever physical measurement you you want. And things are so new. And there's for sure there are some teams who have 
a foundation of research already conducted in this space and have a better idea of what all of this data being collected means than I do, than anyone in the public space does, because all of that data collection, force plates and you know grip strength and all this other stuff is like largely proprietary. And it's going to take time, even if we had the data, which like MLB really won't give us, uh, and we like I've asked right and been told you know no gently many times, which is fine for now. But like we don't really know, and we wouldn't know for a couple of years yet, like probably another five years or so, how any of this stuff correlates to your performance in professional baseball because it's the third combine, uh, and so like all of that stuff is still sort of shaking out. Uh, and then some of the procedural stuff is 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 still, you know, in development as well. Like having things at Chase Field this year were different than Petco last year because like it's an indoor facility and the way the suites are structured is like more convenient for the players. And you know, having it at a major league facility, which they didn't the first year of the combine, was more convenient for like everyone to be in a suite and the teams all get a place to like have the players cycle through and have like a job interview type of, you know, time with the player. And so they're still learning how to structure things uh, to like, so that everyone, teams, players, their representatives, the media, whoever, vendors, like there are some suites set up for Rawlings and, you know, other vendors and stuff. Uh, Like how everyone can get the most out of this event is still sort of in the offing. Uh, But the way it went was the first day for me and for the scouts was like the hardest, longest day. It was like a 13-hour day. You're alternating batting practice sessions with like infield and outfield drills and then pitchers' bullpens. And the grounds crew was running around, moving, you know, the different equipment around the field and resurfacing it and, you know, for each individual drill. And, you know, it was a 13-hour day of like player evaluation. And it, I do think it is meaningful for some of the players to be seen apples to apples against their peers in short succession, you know, with one another. I'm taking BP. I'm the kid from the catcher from Puerto Rico taking BP. And now here's the college catcher from Missouri taking BP. Like check us out back to back. It's just a unique environment to be able to do that type of thing. Same thing for the guys coming in to throw, you know, 25 pitch bullpens with the track man data being, you know, live on the, Jumbotron, like all that is super duper cool. Uh, And I do think there are guys who like have made and lost themselves money here this week. Uh, But there are so many components, you know, just by doing like those showcase workout type of drills. Uh, And there's just so many things that, you know, I don't know how to parse and don't really have the opportunity to because it is stuff that we don't have access to. So yesterday we all went and the workout scrimmage type stuff is all done. And they set up on the field, you know, rows of and rows of trainers tables. And we're doing like flexibility and balance assessments of the players. And there was like the 30 yard dash set up. And so like, you know, Ben, do you know how to like test your own shoulder mobility? I have gone through like a driveline intake sort of thing where you measure that stuff just when I was working on the book. So I I guess so. I don't know if I know how to do it myself, but I have participated in it. So like they're doing that type of stuff where they have like a piece of PVC pipe that they're like holding behind their torsos, the players, where they're reaching back, you know, with one arm 
from like their lower body basically and then up above their shoulder with the other one. And like, you know, it was kind of strange that there were like three or four MLB personnel to each player kind of taking them through the, the motions and some of it seemed to be subjectively assessed uh, and some of it is like more objective where if you can like balance over one leg while your other leg dips behind you and you're like pushing like a marker. A slider, yeah. Yeah, like a f- further away. I took a bunch of video of it. I will make sure that it goes up on YouTube and that Ben can like throw a link to the video in, in the post so people can kind of see what's going on. Uh, but like what teams are making of that, I really don't know. I think it's good for us to be more flexible in general. No one's like, ah, this kid's hips are stiff as cement. Let's draft him. You know, like I, fl- I felt the lack of flexibility in my hips after sitting through that high school game on, on Tuesday. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's more interesting than useful right now, like that portion of the combine, just because even th- there's probably a great disparity between the teams as far as how they understand some of these components that are assessing one's capacity for movement. Uh, it is a thing that I am subjectively looking for as guys play baseball, like the way their bodies move is important to me, especially when we're talking about amateur baseball players. I think it's important stuff, and uh, I really like appreciate the opportunity to go and that it's 20 minutes from my front door rather than like in Cary, North Carolina, where it was two years ago. But I still think, yeah, like aside from there being individual dudes who stood out to me during the workout portions and some other guys who I you know feel happy to move on from as like having on my pre-draft list or whatever, uh, you know, it's a nice like supplemental. It's not the bulk of the evaluation by any means, but it is like a nice, interesting way to end the calendar to an extent uh, and like catch up with some dudes who, you know, in shorts and a t-shirt look a little bit different compared to one another than they would, you know, throughout the course of the spring. Meg and I have an ongoing dispute about the advisability of stretching. So we should probably steer away from that. It's a contentious topic on this podcast, but it's not contentious. (laughs) I'm right. And you're wrong. Are you an anti-stretcher, Ben? Yeah. He's an anti. You like that guy on the, the T Nation forum post where it's just lifting, no stretching? I, yeah, I don't do static stretching, at least. And there's a lot of science that supports me. Meg disregards uh, all the evidence. But. There, wait, okay. There's science, maybe, that supports you from like a, a strength building perspective. But in terms of flexibility and being able to move when you are an old person and I come to kick your ass in the well, 26 yes, under 25 I, draft, I reserve you're not going right to be able to get away from me, Ben. To reevaluate if I'm around a few decades down the line. I'm just saying, you know, currently. Anyway, there's Rick's one more. talking <laughs> like she stretches. I, yeah, I'm not a good stretcher. She maybe advocates for it, but like I've seen her inconsi- swing a baseball bat and she's not stretching. <laughs> she's never claimed to be flexible. In fact, she has claimed not to be. And right. therefore, that is why she should stretch, she says. Yes. So, Jared Robbins took BP, which by the way, like, come on, what are we doing? We're, a bunch of us are here to work. Like, and so I was happy that he embarrassed himself taking BP. Like, that's a dude who definitely doesn't stretch. And his hips did not move at all. Like, his body just rotates as, like, he's like an oscillating fan with 20 raw power. (laughs) 
I have one more question on this topic, and I was wondering whether you've noticed a, a change in the makeup of the players, the demographics of the players, because I was reading an ESPN article, and it was about black players in baseball, right, which has been on the decline at the MLB level, and it's a, a record low, at least, you know, since they've been keeping these stats in the early 90s uh, on opening day rosters, something like 6% of players were black, and there have been various efforts efforts to try to change that kind of, you know, grassroots efforts and MLB investing in the Players Alliance and the Dream Series and RBI and other programs, right? And this article makes the case that that is paying dividends. Uh, It says that 15% of the players who took part in the Combine were black, according to MLB, approximately. The MLB Youth Academy, uh, another initiative are you noticing that? Is is that something that stands out when you attend showcases that there has been a change, that there's been an uptick in that area? Yeah, I noticed a decent amount of HBCU guys working mm-hmm. out. I think that's good. Like, that's definitely an underscouted uh, section of college baseball. I'll say the two players I plan on writing about uh, in a standalone article from the Combine who I interviewed are both black, but that's not a, you know, a scientific sample. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four of the first five players picked in the draft last year were black players, which was a first, right? And that was the same year when there were no black players in the World Series for the first time since 1950, I think, which was seen as another sign of the times. So they're making an effort to correct that. And from what I've read, perhaps it is paying off, but I don't know if it's noticeable enough uh, to say that that it's working or it will work. It's an uphill climb because an MLB needs to continue to do some of the stuff that they've done. Like every on MLK weekend every year, there are usually three amateur events happening here in Arizona. One put on by Perfect Game, often one by Under Armour, and then the Dream Series or the Breakthrough Series, it's been renamed. Uh, and like the Breakthrough Series is MLB an MLB run event where they pay the way for that group of players. They're all either black or sometimes there are like white kids who are from socioeconomically disadvantaged families. uh, And like they pay the way for those kids to come work out in front of scouts at the Angels Spring Training Facility. And that is on that weekend always the best event. Like it is the best run event. It is well rounded. The kids that like seem to get a lot out of it. They have a ton of ex big leaguers in there uh, to come like coach and relay their experience uh, to these young men. And so, like, MLB is definitely doing some stuff, but the the problem is that, like, the way so much of baseball scouting on the amateur side has trended, like, it is a cottage industry for places like Prep Baseball Report, Perfect Game, where you have to almost have to have players who come from well-to-do families who can afford to fly to Fort Myers pay for, you know, their uniforms of the travel ball team. Like, travel ball is an expensive thing. Uh, Even a lot of the highly drafted black players of the last several years, like, they come from the families of, you know, their their parents are ex-pro athletes or something like that. You know, like, Elijah Green and Kamar Rocker, like, these, yes, they're, like, young black men, and that experience on its own in the baseball world is is going to be its own thing. Um, but they aren't necessarily all from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background, which is really the area where, 
you know, and certainly like the overlap of that and, and race in our country is a certain way, um, such that like, there is a lot of it, but, uh, but yeah, like it's, it's going to be tough college baseball. There are only so many scholarships to go around. The entire team isn't on a full scholarship. There are only, you know, about a dozen scholarships to go around. 11, yeah. 11.7 for right a, across a roster of 20, you know, 25 to 35 kids. And so you're selecting for kids playing baseball who often have money. Um, so there are still like, you know, real pro- like a, there's a real problem here. It's not all necessary necessarily at Major League Baseball's fault. But yeah, like I certainly all the things that we keep on the board, there are many things in the database of the board that aren't public on the site that like we are keeping, like college commitments and like the state where kids went to high school and all that stuff the player's race isn't one of them. (laughs) So it's like a really hard thing to track because it's not necessarily a thing you want to do, like have a database of players where like their race is listed. Like that seems weird to me. Uh, So some of the way college baseball and like, there are a lot of high school baseball players who are famous before they are pro baseball players because they have social media, like they have a YouTube channel or their travel ball team has a YouTube channel and they have a following that someone of my generation can't quite comprehend because it's so different than what it was like even five years ago for like Max Clark to be famous already, for Drew Jones to be as famous as he is like that's a different thing. And so maybe there's like a pull toward being, you know, an important baseball player that didn't used to exist uh, that will lead like the youth of our country and Canada and like Puerto Rico to want to be drafted as a baseball player more than anything else. But, you know, uh, I still think that some of the system is still not built for poor kids to play baseball. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think Major League Baseball understands that it's a problem, you know, and this is one of those situations in which Major League Baseball does not equal baseball culture in the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a disconnect. I think there's a uh, profit motive to to maintain this disconnect. You know, baseball is not the only sport that's going through this where it's tough to break in if you're poor. But it's not something that, you know, it's good to see – like I said, the HBCU kids uh, get a shot at the combine, but it's going to take more than that to make meaningful change into, you know, it's, it's good and we should applaud that, but it's it's not going to solve the problem all on its own. And it's something that I imagine, like, even if you continue to commit resources and commit more resources, which I hope they will, because like, you're right, it's not, it's not entirely the fault of Major League Baseball that this is the amateur architecture we have but they're also the ones best positioned to do something about it just because of the financial resources they have. But all of that is going to take time to bear fruit. And so, you know, it's a long, it's a long-term project and one that I hope they will remain committed to and increase their commitment to. Last thing, Eric, I don't know if you've seen this story because you've been busy scouting, but on Wednesday, there was a class action lawsuit filed against Major League Baseball and the 30 teams and Rob Manfred by a group of 17 former scouts, an age discrimination lawsuit. It's 17 scouts now. They may be joined by many more eventually, but they are alleging that MLB, that the teams essentially used the pandemic and analytics as pretexts to get rid of 
older employees and replace them with younger and presumably cheaper ones. And they have a a few specific allegations, uh, basically about the removal of a notification system when scouts would become available after they'd lose a job, that uh, there would be a, a system that would inform other teams that they were available, that that, that was done away with. They also alleged that there was a blacklist to identify older scouts who should not be hired by teams. And they also said that, yeah, the pandemic was leveraged as an opportunity to terminate an entire class of older employees. So they're alleging that what we've seen happen in scouting in in recent years, you know, reductions in, say, pro scouts, uh, at least domestically, and the shift to video scouting and less in-person scouting and advanced scouting and pro scouting in the minors, essentially, that that was not just the way things are going, but was more of a, a concerted effort and uh, discrimination against these older veteran scouts. And I don't know if that's something that you've heard from other people in the game, whether this has kind of been discussed in the grapevine. You know, I've seen a lot of people reacting to this story saying, look, it's just, you know, baseball changed and uh, the role of of scouts changed and maybe not everyone could adapt to that or maybe those positions just didn't exist, etc. But obviously you can't rule out the possibility that there was uh, something more than that going on. So I wonder what you think of that idea that there was sort of a specific targeting of older scouts potentially and cutting those jobs. Yeah. Um, I actually did not mm-hmm. see that story, but this is not the first time something like this has happened. I think it yeah. was probably going on over five years ago where there was a twins scout who sued them for age discrimination. Mm-hmm. There were some specifics about that case. Like it was a scout in Australia, if I remember correctly, And so, like, some of the fact that it was, like, in Australia and, like, that the twins were spending an inordinate amount of resources in a place that wasn't, like, giving them a real return on their investment was, like, part of why they ended up winning the case the twins did. Yeah, uh, uh, the suit says, as part of the reform process, MLB endeavored to begin heavily recruiting younger scouts at the same time intentionally pushing out from the scout collective older scouts with prior knowledge, qualifications, expertise, and training based on a false stereotype that older scouts lacked the ability to use analytics and engage in video scouting with the same acumen as younger scouts. Yeah, when Future Value, the book, came out in April of 2020, and in the book, Kylie and I write a lot about like how this is likely to occur and mm-hmm. it already started to occur. And some of it is because of like return on investment in the scouting space, especially in the pro scouting space, was not very good. And the tools used to go about pro scouting had become so data oriented and video oriented. There are a fair share of older scouts who did not want to change. And then there are definitely older scouts who are tenured enough to be expensive and teams were happy to move on for, from them for those reasons. Yeah. I, I believe uh, mm-hmm. that to be, to be very true. And yeah, you have, we have seen teams, including teams who are like objectively good organizations. I, I believe uh, like the Atlanta Braves totally change how they do pro scouting over the course of basically the last five years. And I do think the pandemic accelerated a lot of that. 
Mm-hmm. The Angels laid off a lot of their scouts, or furloughed a lot of their scouts around the pandemic, and then many of them were not brought back. And, you know, the Braves, at one point, when I first moved to Arizona, the Braves had three guys who would cover the complexes during the spring, and then each of them would go to a short-season affiliate. So, like, one would go to the Northwest League, one would go to the Pioneer League, which doesn't exist anymore, which is another part of, you know, another variable at play here. There are just fewer mm-hmm. affiliates to cover, and so there are right. going to be fewer reasons to have like a gigantic scouting staff. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, StatCast came in and Hawkeye right. came in right around this period too. And yes. that maybe gives you information that you could only have gotten from a scout before, but now you can replicate it or partly replicate it. Yeah. It's going to be hard to prove, you know, in this case, there are so many other things happening, you know, to prove age discrimination in a situation like this. I feel like it's going to be very, very difficult. It's already a very difficult thing to do. But yeah, like in this case, there were just so many things that changed all at once that has made scouting, like it is, it is not a growth industry. There's still some teams who have, you know, big, robust scouting departments on the pro side, like the Rays and the Dodgers and teams who you would think are more analytically oriented. And then you have teams like the Guardians who... Like, don't send amateur scouts to college games. Like, there's just enough to be done on video and with data that until the college postseason starts, like, you're probably not going to see a Cleveland Guardian scout at a college game unless they're there to, like, get collect high-speed video, you know? So things have really changed industry-wide, and the skill set of scouts uh, has, you know, shifted. What teams are looking for has shifted to you know, at home remote workers who are doing like a version of the job that I, that I do where there's, you know, you have a, a bigger scope and what you're doing is more about like video and data than like in-person looks, which are still super duper important in my opinion. And I do think that teams are who are ignoring what people who have been around baseball or just people who have social skills, period, certainly better than the ones I have, you know, like what that mean, what that can do for your organization, I think is, is meaningful. I think there has been a little bit of an overcorrection on, on that score for some of these older dudes to like go and talk to a pitching coach who they've known for several decades and learn much more about the personality of the players who they have to care about as part of their job than I could from being in the stands. Like, I do think that's an important thing that we are largely ignoring. There was, I won't say like the team or the player or anything like that, but there was a draft pick who didn't sign, went pretty high in the draft within the last couple of years. And like, this is one of those teams that kind of cut scouting and the player who they drafted was booted off of multiple teams for like hazing incidents on team road trip, hookers and blow in the hotel. And this isn't a college player who we were talking about. Okay. And they, they didn't know. They didn't know any of that stuff. Most all the teams had him off of the draft board because of these things. And they used a pretty high pick on this guy and then didn't sign him because they learned about these things after the fact. And like, these are the, you're at risk of at the very least, you know, blowing your whatever it was round pick. I won't say because it might become obvious who it is, (laughs) but, uh, but like, you know, and and at the, at worst, you know, being embarrassed publicly by stuff like this coming out, which I'm like being kind to the org and, the player too, I think in this case, but like not saying this stuff out loud, what happened, right? But like someone more bloodthirsty than I am would be happy to say 
that this happened if it meant, you know, their article getting a million clicks or whatever it is. And so like not having boots on the ground scouts who know that stuff is a failure of your process, even though you're like objectively a team that's pretty good at this uh, overall. But I caution teams against leaning too far in this direction. But yeah, age discrimination is going to be really, really tough to prove in a court of law. Yeah, I just I wonder if it goes to court if there isn't a settlement and there's some sort of discovery process. You know, would you turn up an email or a text message or something from some front office person who's uh, talking about we need to go yeah, with someone probably. younger? Like that that seems like it could happen, that right? Seems but I mean, <laughs> yeah. So would that be enough? I don't know. Like there was a, an age discrimination lawsuit that Phil Regan, the former Mets pitching coach, filed earlier this year. He was in his 80s when they made a change, and he alleged that the then GM Brody Van Wagenen had specifically said that they weren't keeping him because of his age, which if true, like you can't do that. So if he was able to document that, that would be sort of the smoking gun. I don't know. I don't know that there's been any resolution to that case that I've seen, but like, could something like that turn up even though there are plenty of other legitimate reasons for some of those uh, personnel changes? Yeah, maybe. So I wonder if they would want to avoid that possibility anyway. That's interesting. And the combine weirdly makes them more vulnerable to some of this type of stuff because at least Meg and I both know there's an instance where a team asked a player during a pre-draft interview, not recently, this is like a while ago. A while ago. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Mm. And like, it's a job interview. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Player in question was like, I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to ask me that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> during my job interview. Yeah. So yeah, like, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out, I guess. We still don't know. Some of these lawsuits, they pop up, you hear that they're happening and you never hear what actually happened. Like the Angels... Have there's a lawsuit against the Angels, a couple of the players who now play for the Mets in who were uh, prospects in the Dominican Republic were suing them for like reneging on their verbal agreements with the Angels. And Passon reported that, uh, I guess it would have been a little bit over a year ago, and we have not had an update on that yet. That would be very interesting to hear how that goes. It would set precedent for like, I can think of four teams right now off the top of my head who have like, there are deals they haven't broken yet that they are going to for like next year's international class. Like they've overcommitted their pool already, knowing that they're going to wait for these guys to develop physically for another eight months and then triage them. You know, like this goes on a lot. Like it's, you know, pretty gross. And so it'll be very, very interesting to see how that, you know, shakes out if, but some of this stuff we can never hear about how it's resolved. Well, we will hear more from you soon because I'm sure we'll talk to you after the draft. So good luck with your mocks and we will talk to you then. Thanks for having me on again and uh, for creating further distance between me and Grant, which is uh, (laughs) a thing I seek to have as great a distance from him as possible based (laughs) on his personality. Yeah. (laughs) Extending your lead is the all-time most frequent effect without guests. And Mike, we finished our Pass Blast series on the podcast recently. I know you had a real corker of a Pass Blast ready to go because uh, you had a five-minute rant that you wanted to unleash about the role of uh, New York in the Revolutionary War just in time for the London series. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh, no. <laughs> but, New York uh, is going back to London just like they wanted all along. <laughs> yeah, the, my state's role in that conflict was uh, not always uh, – something that disgraceful yes yeah. but yeah. but uh i'm grateful that you did not make me play 
college World Series player or revolutionary war general or anything like that. So Until next time. I gotta, <laughs> thank you for sparing me. I got to climb up the effectively wild guest standings myself. Yes. <laughs> All right. After we recorded, as I'm sure you know, the Reds extended their winning streak by stopping Atlanta's. It was another one-run win. Joey Votto banged a couple bombs, but Ellie De La Cruz was the star. He hit for the cycle. He got the triple last, which is the most exciting way to do it. Fifth youngest player to hit for the cycle. Did it in the third fewest games. First Cincinnati Red to cycle since Eric Davis, whom he's often compared to, whose number he wears, who has mentored him. And 43,000 fans were there to see it. Turns out winning is exciting and people will pay to be in the ballpark. Okay, it is time for the inaugural edition of the Future Blast. Our successor to the Past Blast, where we will read a speculative dispatch about baseball's future, an alternate future, and what will happen in the year that corresponds to the episode title. And the Future Blasts are provided by our guest on episode 2023, Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball. Rick writes, Accuracy and speed in 2024. In 2024, Major League Baseball followed the will of the people, it seemed, by instituting the ABS automatic ball strikes system that had found success in AAA the previous two seasons. In the minors, the system had been used two ways, a full system where the robo-ump called every pitch or the challenge system where the catcher, hitter, or pitcher could challenge a call and a replay would provide the decision. Each team got three challenges a game. The challenge system slowed the game a bit. Each challenge took 30 seconds or so, but the players, coaches, and especially the fans in AAA liked the entertainment value of seeing the replay on the scoreboard screen, just like they do with challenges on the base pass or in the outfield. Even with the ABS system, the average time for games played stayed about the same at two hours and 40 minutes, similar to the 2023 season with all its changes meant to move things along. And speaking of moving things along, the 2023 limits on pitcher disengagements and the timer on hitters and pitchers, along with those larger bases, encouraged a return to the golden age of stolen bases, harking back to the 1970s and 1980s. In 2023, the Pirates, Guardians, A's, and others more than doubled their stolen bases per game. In 2024, they were joined by everyone else, and the numbers were reflective of the glory days of base stealing, with Red Sox star David Hamilton and the Mets' Omar De Los Santos serving as the contemporary versions of Maury Wills, Lou Brock, Ricky Henderson, and Vince Coleman. Hamilton was the first player since Coleman in 1987 to reach the century mark, with his late-season sprint to 106 stolen bases. And there are even more dramatic changes on the way. The success of the designated pinch runner in the Atlantic League during the 2023 season and the single disengagement rule from the pitching rubber per at-bat led directly to their use in the low minors in 2024, where they livened up the action in the scoring and seems certain to be in Major League Baseball by 2025 or 2026. Watch for specialists in the years to come as world-class sprinters work on their sliding skills and dramatically change the way the game is played. I think we're already diverging from our most likely future reality, but we will diverge more dramatically as time goes on. If you're listening to this in time, check out the Padres Nationals game on Saturday. The Padres are promoting a knuckleballer, the real deal, Matt Waldron, to fill in for Michael Waka, who had some shoulder fatigue. Waldron will be the first true knuckleballer in the big leagues since former Effectively Wild guest Mickey Janis in 2021. It's been a while. I was worried it might not happen again. Here's hoping Matt Waldron does well, sticks around for a while, despite his seven ERA in AAA with a 5.34 FIP. And hey, he's 26 years old, so he might have 10 or 15 years ahead of him. Can't wait to meet this major leaguer. Also on episode 2016, we bantered a bit about whether the pitch clock would cause players to be more or less fatigued as the season went on. It ups the pace. It gives them less recovery time between pitches, but 
it also means that they're on the field for less total time. And we talked about how that might help catchers in particular who'd have to crouch a lot less and maybe they'd have fewer late season swoons. Well, Leo Morgenstern didn't mention that explicitly in the piece that he published Friday, but he noted that qualified catchers are the hottest new trend of the season. There've been fewer and fewer catchers who've qualified for the batting title in recent seasons, roughly four per year. And so far this year, there are 13, which will likely decrease as the season goes on, but it would be pretty extraordinary if it stayed anywhere close to that. So maybe we are already seeing some products of the pitch clock. Catchers have avoided injuries this year, but I guess that could be correlated to less crouching time too. You can support Effectively Wild by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help us keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Gary Egan, Jack Colwell, Ryder Krauss, Tom Wilson, and Stephen Kimmel. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams, ad-free Fangrass memberships, discounts on merch, expedited email answers, so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. Anyone and everyone can send us questions and comments via email at podcast.fangrass.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. Thanks to you for listening today and this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you next week. Effectively wild, oh wild